Hello, and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. Hi, I'm Mara Davis, media personality, talent booker, dog lover, music lover, and I am so happy we are back doing this podcast. Yes, it has been too long. I'm Terry Anulowitz, State House Representative for District 42, which is home to the world champion Atlanta Braves, which will be relevant to this episode. So... The Braves are being honored at the White House when this episode drops on Monday, Rosh Hashanah. Yes. And I found this really, really interesting um, and exciting. But I have to ask you, Terry, was this politically calculated? No. I mean, you win the World Series, you go to the White House, right? Like, it's a thing that you do. But what took so long? That, I don't know. And that, honestly, if anything, it could probably just be COVID protocols, And getting in the calendar, I honestly have no idea. But I know that I received my invitation to go (sighs) with the Braves to the White House. (laughs) And I will be there on Monday and wearing my pearls because it's a throwback to the World Series. But yeah, I don't know why it's just happening now. I would imagine it would have to do with COVID protocols and availability and the team's schedule and the president's oh. schedule, and all of those other things put together. But I think it's great that the Braves are going to be honored at the White House. We've clinched the playoffs. You know, it's it's going to be a good day in D.C. I'm really excited. But I have to wonder about that, Terry, because the Braves have been a political lightning rod. We know that they have a lot of political affiliations. Last year's All-Star Game. I know you have to be sensitive. You are the state representative for this district. So it just seems like the timing of the Atlanta Braves, America's team, is arriving at the White House um, less than 50 days um, outside the midterms. Yes, they are America's team, and they are in so many ways Cobb County's team. And I'll point out again something I've mentioned, (laughs) that the Atlanta Braves are represented by a Democrat for the state Senate, the state House, the county commission the, you know, the sheriff's department, I mean, all, all the way, you know, but for the governor <laughs> and the Congress. I think the, I think the Brave Stadium is in Barry Milk's district, but for everybody else, they're represented by Democrats and they do know that. And they have been, you know, they've always been very supportive of me. They, um, you know, they know that, I mean, you want to talk about political realities, sports betting and legalizing sports betting in Georgia is a high priority for the Braves. It was the Braves along with the Falcons and the Hawks and the United who formed the Georgia Sports Betting Alliance. This is a key priority for them. And they know that in order for that to happen, they need to have strong relationships on both sides of the aisle under the Gold Dome. And they are, you know, they've been very deliberate about that. And I think that part of the work of the Sports Betting Alliance and their advocates down at the Capitol is why we now have two candidates for governor who are like, oh yeah, totally down with sports betting. So. (laughs) Right. I mean, so that's, that's, well, that's very exciting. So do you know what you're wearing? I I do. I do. <laughs> I'm going all in. And, I, you know, I've been a Braves fan since I was little and lived in Louisiana. Are because, you wearing the, like, Braves outfit or no, regular outfit? No, no, no. I'm wearing, it's the White House. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing, like, a, a hat. I might bring in a baseball, but no, I'm wearing a navy blue suit and a red top and my white loafers and a string of pearls. Oh, my gosh. Good for you. That's so amazing. Well, I'm going to be in the D.C. area that time, too. So if uh, before we started talking, I was 
trying to find a way to grease my way in with dairy. I don't think it's going to happen. No, I was, you would probably, ha- I have already had to give them my social security number. And I'm, yeah. I'm excited. I've been to the White House as a tourist. My family, my, me and myself, my husband, my, our two kids, we toured the White House on December 30th, 2016. So mm. we were there right before they installed the golden toilets. Um, when the, you know, the Obamas were getting ready to move out and right. it was a really just bittersweet time to be there because when you, when you tour, when you visit the White House as a tourist, you, you go through all these corridors and hallways and there's all these photos that are put up by the current administration. So, you know, we're, we know what's coming and we're walking past all of these fantastic, I'm sure Pete Souza photos of Obama and different people visiting the White House and different presidents through the years. And you just, you know, you, you, you see just the, the, the awe and the gravitas of being in this building and knowing at the time who was about to move into the White House, it was a very, it was a very bittersweet experience. So I'm very excited to be returning to the White House as a guest for this reception honoring the Atlanta Braves. Well, good for you. That's going to be really, really exciting. And uh, I, I, it'll be interesting to see how local, our local politicians who have been you know, blaming Stacey Abrams on the all-star game and use that as a campaign talking point. Uh, do, you know, do we see Governor Kemp uh, sending out a tweet congratulating our Braves being honored? Because look, let's face it, you're, you, you, you're being, now I think it was so hard with our, our last president because he was just so polarizing and, and nasty and uninvited teams, you oh, know, yeah. and, and all this weird stuff. But like at this point, like, look, you may not like Joe Biden's policies and that's totally fine. And that's fair. But like, he is still the president of the United States. You are still going in the hallowed halls of the, of the white house in America, you know? Right. So, right. so you have to have some level of respect here. So it'll be interesting to see how our, um, Republican politicians who are huge Braves fans, uh, do they just they just probably ignore it, right? No, I think they'll go. And it's funny, I was actually talking to a colleague of mine from across the aisle, and and he said to me, he said, you know, he said, you get an invitation from the White House. He said, you go to the White House. I mean, this is, it's, I, no, I think that, I, I actually have no idea who else from the General Assembly or, you know, statewide electeds are going. I um, I'm just gonna find out when I get there because I'm sort of doing my own so doing happy my own for thing you. with That's traveling. So good. I know. Well, and it was I. You <laughs> know so I. Great. When the All Star Game was moved from Atlanta, and that was you know right after the session, and I tried to be a voice of reason on that topic yeah. because it was so disingenuous, and every time the Republicans drag out that tired trope that Stacey Abrams got the All Star Game canceled. It's so disingenuous. It's so easily disproven. I mean, it is just, it's, it's just not true when they say this, you know, and, and I mean, Stacey Abrams had an op-ed saying like, don't go just like, just like Stacey Abrams and all of the other Democrats said after the heartbeat bill was passed, when the film, you know, different film companies were threatening to pull out so many industries were upset. We were like, no, 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 stay and fight, stay in this fight with us. And honestly, at the end of the day, I believe in my bones that when the MLB decided to move the All-Star game, it was a strictly business decision on their part because they have employees, the players are their employees, and they had a lot of players who were upset about what was happening in Georgia with SB202 and the voting bill. And the players are the MLB's constituency in many ways, and they've got to keep their players happy because if they had had a bunch of players be like, you know what, I'm out. That's a big problem for the MLB. So, you so know it was what? easier for them to avoid the entire thing. My whole theory with that was that it was the family of Hank Aaron 
that uh, privately, I don't have any facts on this, Terry. I don't know that this happened, but Hank Aaron was to be honored. And the family took the MLB aside and said, this is really, you know, I'm sure like I'm no sports expert, but I thought that was really, really odd. And and I, and nobody really talked about that. And um, so anyway, I think it was just a crappy time and people used it for their own political they game. Did. Absolutely. Uh, but, but that is the, the world that we live in now. So moving on, we are getting so close to the midterm elections and, you know, there's a lot of intensity out there and on the top of people's minds, obviously, are some recent polls that have been coming out. So we have a guest coming on to break down the polls. And people look at that stuff really closely. It just seems like everybody... Now, we all know in Georgia, it is going to be ridiculously close. I don't care what anything says. I think things... I don't I don't I, think you I know agree. until you know. Especially, like, there was one in the AJC, which we're going to talk about with our guests. But I was fascinated that respondents were asked to name the top issue facing the country from the list. First, cost of living. Get it. Totally, totally valid. Second, threats to democracy. Got it. Also valid. Jobs economy. Got it. Number four, immigration, border security. We're not in a border state. We're not a border state. And and I would highly recommend if you're listening to watch the U.S. and the Holocaust, that is the Ken Burns documentary on PBS right now. It is not an easy watch at all. But the anti-immigration rhetoric, of course, the anti-Semitism, we, all, we, we obviously know that, but it's the anti-immigration rhetoric. And I think that's the branding of the GOP here. On this issue, it sure is. I mean, they, I mean, look, look at what DeSantis is doing. By exploiting already traumatized refugees from Venezuela, where we know it's pretty terrible, and he's spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Florida taxpayer dollars to shuttle these poor people around and lie to them. I mean, it's to lie to them, tell them there are jobs for them, and then and then it's it's just it's bizarre. And but I I don't I it was a, it's a weird polling question. It's a question I don't see how in any way it is valid for these statewide races that we're talking about in Georgia Senate. Yeah, you want to know where, where your federal folks stand on immigration and border security. But Brian Kemp's opinion on border security is, I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but it doesn't matter. I don't understand that. So here we are like, look, I think everybody can agree that there's always been problems with immigration, the border, seeking asylum, all of these yeah, things. Yeah, the process for legal immigration. But this is not like a new thing. This is an ongoing thing that's right. always happening here. So it feels like there are these certain dog whistles. The uh, The border is one and George Soros is the other one. Yeah. I've been seeing that a lot with the Georgia GOP. Yeah. Uh, I've seen that, you know, shots at candidates like that. And we see you. And it is very, very troubling that you are making things. But that's what that's what they do. That's what they do. They just make things up. Yeah, they're trying. No, they're trying to rile up their base by making them seem like there's, I don't know, a, a yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. And what, what, what's, heartbreaking about the way the GOP likes to rile up their base with the issue of immigration is that we're talking about people. We're talking about human beings 
who are in a desperate struggle for their lives and they are doing what any one of us would do if we were in their situation, which is get themselves and get their families to somewhere safe. Do we need to figure out how we're going to better deal with the influx of refugees and migrants? Absolutely. I feel like everybody agrees on that. Are they a threat to our safety? No, they are not. Well, so that's been going on. And then the other thing that I find particularly fascinating is, um, so Tim Miller was in town and he's a former Republican strategist. Yeah, I just read his book. So the book is called Why We Did It. We were actually, he's going to be a guest on the Vote Her podcast because I went to his book signing and his book talk at Virginia Highland Books, you know, bookstore, which is a great bookstore. And he gave a great talk and I met him and it's a great book. I had a lot of really good takeaways from it as, and why we did it is as to like why people, you know, went over to root for President Trump, even though they knew things were bad. This is an interesting question. He was out on the road here and when he was here in Georgia and he asked Brian Kemp about supporting Burt Jones for lieutenant governor um, being a fake elector. I'll campaign with anybody that's on our ticket. I mean, look, the voters have spoken. I'm proud of the folks on the Republican ticket. We've been with just about all of them now, and we'll continue to do that. Hey, Governor, on that front, though, you said you you passed the strongest voter integrity bill in the country. Obviously, you did the right thing certifying the last election, but you have somebody on the ticket now that tried to undermine the voter integrity, that it passed some or that spread an election conspiracies, wanted an alternate slate of electors. Are you concerned at all to have somebody like that on the ticket? Somebody, if something happened, might be the governor? Well, uh, um, look, he's he's the nominee uh, of our party, and I'm going to support the ticket. I'm going to campaign with him. Uh, you would have to ask him about individual positions he's taken. I mean, not all Republicans agree on all the policy issues. We see that every single day. Uh, but I, I don't want to be speaking for other people. I, I control what I can control. I think the voters of this state know where I stand. Look, even if people don't like positions I've taken, you know, there are things that I promised people I would do so they can at least appreciate that I've done what I said. Now, what's interesting about this is that he just says, I'm going to support anybody who's on the ticket. And he kind of gets a free pass on this. I feel like journalists need to push a little bit harder on this. I agree. I agree because it, it's, so it's like, are you really saying you'd support anybody on the ticket? Well, that's what he's saying. Yeah. And that's and like, you like, like, does that mean you're supporting, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is overtly anti-Semitic and racist? Like, are you supporting her because she's on the ticket? And that's, and one of the things he talks about in that book is, is that, you know, that team mentality and, and how when you're in the game, as he says, you, you know, often the, you know, the policy or the people, the individual candidates are much less your priority than getting points for your, for your team. And you can see how if someone is fully immersed in that mindset, that in the game mindset, how they lose absolute touch with reality, which you saw in so many of these anecdotes that he offered interviews with his friends, like they lost all touch with reality. They were in this bubble and they knew, you know, and so many of them like, well, you know, we're trying to do what we can to, to stop Trump and to, you know, that's right. That's how they were justifying it to themselves. I think it was a great, it was a really interesting read and he was really cool in person and I really dug his talk. You know, of course, the one uh, person in the book that I was really fascinated with, if you watch The View, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, yes. is uh, a big part of the book. Yes. And she was really fascinating. There was a lot about her I didn't know. Like her father is like basically started the birtherism. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And how like her family is so crazy hard, right? So 
at first I did want to give her a free pass in the sense that like, this was her upbringing. If you grow up in like an evangelical household, right. you're probably going to be evangelical, right? right. So, so this is, was who she was and she got these opportunities in the Trump administration and she just kind of didn't want to be there, but she did it anyway because she was like, wow, I'm going to get this great job and I've worked my whole life for this. But again, why we did it and she did it. But, you know, look, it's it's uh, rewarded her handsomely yeah, now. Yeah, that's, and I mean, you know, that's <laughs> the thing. There's, that's one of the things that's so, that's so wild about. So, now, there are also a lot of folks who worked in the Trump administration who aren't doing much of anything right now, except for, I guess, perpetuating the grift. <laughs> it's it's a fascinating thing. I would recommend that book and I can't wait to talk to yes, him in another, be fun. in another interview. But we've got to get to the interview you've been really waiting for because so many of us have been looking at these polls. Our guest is Tom Bonnier. He's a veteran Democratic political strategist, and he's the CEO of Target Smart. He's spent over 20 years working in Democratic and progressive politics, and he is also the co-founder of Clarity Campaign. He has worked on tons of campaigns, everybody from Senator Cory Booker, who we missed at the Freedom Farmers Market this past weekend, even to President Obama. And you've seen him in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and an NPR, and he is with the Voter Podcast right now. So the first thing I want to ask is these the Georgia AJC poll is the one that a lot of people are talking about because that's the one that seems to be like leaning so heavily on um, Republicans, like the fact that abortion is barely an issue with Georgians. The question is, uh, people have said that, that, that it's not a balanced poll, as in um, there's more Republicans polled in this, and this doesn't make this really an even poll, that it should be, instead of maybe nine points ahead, it should be actually dead even. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I would love to. You know, every poll in the end is based on a prediction of turnout. That's all it is. It's, they have a likely voter model. And we focus so much on the margin. Who's winning or who's losing? Is it inside the margin of error, outside the margin of error? But all of that is assuming that the pollster did a perfect job of figuring out who's going to vote. And to give the pollsters credit, that's hard. That's hard in any election year. I think it's especially hard this year because of all the different factors that can impact turnout and the lack of a good precedent. So I'm going to make all the excuses I can for them before I tell you what I think about it, which is not much. Um, they had a poll out in July that showed a much closer race. And when you look at the poll sample and their likely voter model and who they talked to, it was really reflective of the past elections in Georgia. It shows a slight Republican advantage in terms of party ID, but, you know, a reasonable number of independents and really a close uh, close number with Democrats. Um, and then you fast forward to this poll, and uh, Republicans outnumbered Democrats in this sample by their own uh, telling of it, 9.2 points, which would make it a more Republican electorate than we saw in any recent election in Georgia, including 2014, which was a, a, a pretty solid Republican year in the state. So. It's hard to explain that. I saw the AJC came out after receiving some of that criticism. And this is the part that I can't believe. They came out and said, well, we don't wait on parties. We don't, which is not to get too far into the weeds, but pollsters will generally, to make sure that their polls aren't skewed, that they don't get too many of one party or another in, 
they will look at that and they'll apply some level of statistical weighting to make sure that the poll isn't biased. And the AJC came out and just said, look, what University of Georgia does here, they don't apply weights. So it is what it is. Party, party ID fluctuates. So what that tells me is we should take that as a snapshot. If Republicans turn out at such a high rate that they outnumber Democrats by over nine points, that they have better turnout than they've had in the midterm election than they had even in the 2014 midterm, that's where the race will stand. So I think the poll is accurate from that context. I just don't think it's at all possible that that's what happened. So I'm really glad to have that feedback because I didn't realize until you said that, like I looked at the numbers and looked at the cross I didn't realize it hadn't been weighted for a party. One of the things that I wanted to know, because I've seen you comment on other polls, for instance, the Marist poll, is the percentage of women and the proportion of women in the poll, because we know that women make up the majority of the electorate in Georgia. Does this poll reflect that reality? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you mentioned the Marist poll and those two came out, I think within an hour or two of each other. Right. And, you know, the reality is <laughs> Georgia for good reason is, is, is polled more than just about any other state. Might be the most polled state this year, wow. given the, 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 the highly competitive races in yeah. the state. And the Marist poll came out and I looked at, well, here's another poll that shows big Republican leads. And then I go through the same thing. I look at the sample. Who did they talk to? And they have this really weird likely voter model. So most pollsters will do something where, again, they look at past vote history of individuals who voted, who hasn't, and they look at past elections, and then they'll construct this model to weight the responses to, to look like the electorate might look, something that's defensible and reasonable. Well, Georgia, in Georgia, women make up a larger share of the electorate than any other state. Women have an, uh, a, a more impactful voice in Georgia elections than women do in any other state. In That's fact, amazing. It is amazing. So we, women and in, in younger voters, Georgia also has one of the youngest electorates in the country. And, you know, when you go back through the past history, the 2020 election, 2018, 2016, 2014, women have never accounted for less than 54.5% of ballots cast. Well, Merit, Maris does this poll. They release this poll. And in their likely voter model, they had women at 49% of the electorate, not even a majority. And the way they did this, and you'll love this, is instead of going out and looking at past history and, and creating a, a likely voter model that they could defend, they just asked the respondents, how likely are you to vote? And that was their model. And the <laughs> surprise, surprise, men are more... Um, bold about this, where they'll go out and say, yeah, I'm definitely voting. And the reality is when you look at the data, men are just more likely to say that and lie about it than women are. The women have tended to be more honest about that response. So the reality is they've created this poll that suggests that after the Dobbs decision, after Roe v. Wade is overturned, after we've seen the surge in women registering to vote and voting around the country and, and in places like Kansas and Alaska and upstate New York, these historical turnout numbers and, and voter registration numbers that we are to believe that in Georgia, women will turn out at a lower rate than they ever have before in the history of the state. So again, every poll is a, should be seen as a what if scenario. So sure, that Marist poll is accurate if women turn out at a lower rate than they ever have in the history of Georgia elections. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, no, we, yeah. we, and also there's a weird, it feels like there's a little bit of a weird mirage because in other states, and I've seen you tweet about this, about the registration levels are, are very, very high in other states by women. But in Georgia, 
we have the automatic registration. Right. So it's very hard for us to see. Have you seen any trends as far as um, maybe absentee ballot or how 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 can we really tell? Because I got to tell you, I I'm very worried that that as much as we're excited about. I mean, it's not exciting. It's horrific, the Dobbs decision. But is it a mirage that, that these women voters are coming out? Well, you know, what's the real deal? So you're right. This is something that we all, I, I think, you know, in the end, I think there's a lot of data to be hopeful about. And I do believe that we're going to see women coming out at historic levels. But, you know, that's based on the assumption that people will act. Um, over the closing weeks of this campaign as they have over the past several weeks since the Dobbs decision. So I do believe there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that goes beyond voter registration. Like I said, you know, you look at how Democrats in other states, granted, but in New York 19, a very competitive district, kind of district that Republicans need to win. Women came out in huge numbers there. In that Kansas ballot initiative, women were 56% of the electorate, a larger share of the electorate than they've ever been in Kansas especially younger women again. And so to your point, in Georgia, voter registration isn't really indicative of intensity because most people are already registered to vote because of the automatic voter registration system. But we can look at absentee ballot requests. So Georgians, as your listeners likely know, um, have for for a, a little bit now, over a week, been able to request a mail ballot. And what we can do is we can look at who is requesting those mail ballots and we can compare it to previous elections. And really the only valid comparison in this case is 2020 because of the big changeover right. in the pandemic. Um, 2018 isn't a great comparison. But what we find, I mean, we know what happened in Georgia in 2020 with the, the great democratic successes statewide. And what we have seen is that women are accounting for a larger share of those mail ballot requests, 60% of them to date, than they were at this same point in 2020. So it's telling us that women are already engaged at a higher level just in terms of taking that first step of voting um, than they were in 2020 when women accounted for almost 56% of ballots cast statewide in that election. So that tells me that, yes, women are highly engaged. Um, they're going to be out there. We don't know in the end what the other side of that equation is. You know, Do the anti-choice voters come out on election day in bigger numbers? We haven't seen that in these special elections no, like haven't. in New York and Alaska uh, or, or Kansas in that uh, primary and constitutional amendment election. But we always have to be cognizant that that's a possibility. Now, tell me about how this will relate to abortion, because one of the things in the AJC poll that I found to be just stunning was how not significant the poll indicated abortion was as an issue to voters. And again, that bit of information, that result from the poll was is not commensurate with anything I'm hearing that talking to women. It, it, it shocked me. It shocked me. It's not commensurate with anything I'm hearing talked to. Of course, a lot of the women I talk to do tend to be Democrats, do tend to be tr- pro-choice, but not all of them. I, I have, and I've talked to a lot of Republicans whose whose spouses and, and the, you know their wives and their sisters and are are very concerned about the issue of choice. And I. Again, seeing how many women in Georgia are applying for absentee ballots, and we're going to have even more data on that next week. We'll start to be able to really pull numbers on that. But it really shocked me that, what, 5% listed abortion as their top issue in the election in this AJC poll. I just, 
I don't see that reflected in, in the day-to-day reality of what I'm seeing on the ground in Georgia. And one more thing, and border security. <laughs> right, like, are we talking about Florida, South Carolina, Alabama? So what are your thoughts on that? You know, uh, polling on those types of questions is really iffy, is the best thing I can say. Okay. And that, you know, another framing of this was I saw a poll uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it asked about how enthusiastic would you say you are to vote. The New York Times did an analysis of this, Nate Cohn, and the, I don't fault his analysis. It was transparent, but I think the context is important um, because his analysis showed and the polls showed that when, the men were actually saying that they were much more enthusiastic to vote. So he was offering that as, well, perhaps there's evidence that abortion isn't firing up women. And if you think of the context and you think of the semantics of that, well, you know, <laughs> If if you are a woman voter in this country and you have just seen a fundamental human civil right taken away from you, is enthusiasm something you would use to describe uh, you going out to vote? Maybe not. I mean, I think we've heard a lot of of um, you know the women leaders and organizers who have driven what we've seen in Kansas and these other places talk about the the resolve, um, you know, the anger the outrage, um, which is all, um, you know, very understandable and, and, and righteous to enthusiasm, isn't it? And I think when you ask about what's their top issue for voting in this election, I think that just gets tricky as well in terms of how people are answering that. And in reality, the polling is important. You know, we should look at it, but in the end, the polling isn't defining outcomes. And I just can't believe, you know, our, our analysis of the Kansas vote where the pro-choice position won by a surprising 18-point margin. And people looked at that immediately and they said, well, it must have just been the Republicans stayed home and it was just a bunch of Democrats coming out in this election. It wasn't the case. 51% of people who voted in that election were registered Republicans. If you do the math on that, a minimum of one in four registered Republicans voted for the pro-choice position. But I I have to ask about that. I have to ask about Mm -hmm. that because... That was a very cut and dry question, right? It was mm-hmm. yes or no. Where you're looking here in Georgia, you know, if you have a candidate, our candidates who are very, and it, you know, if you're looking at Warnock and Walker, it's very polarizing. You know, of obviously one's pro-choice and one's no abortion at all, but Republicans will still vote for Walker just because there's an R next to his name. So should we just kind of be a little sensitive? To, to that, because I've talked to a lot of Republicans and, you know, yeah. it, it crushes my soul when they say things like that. But yeah. but they're there, man. They're there. No, no, that's a good caution. And I guess and I've had people ask me that when I've shared the analysis on Kansas, you know, they said, well, no way that, you know, 25 percent of Republicans are going to vote for a Democratic candidate. And, you know, my response to that is you're right. They won't. Democrats don't need 25 percent of Republicans to win in Georgia or any of these competitive races. And they don't need, you know, 20% or 15%. When you look at in 2020, Democrats won 8% of the Republican vote and still did quite well. And so the reality is some number of Republicans are going to be peeled off by this issue. We've, We've seen that happening around the country. Democrats don't win a congressional race in Alaska without. And to me, that's like the one, yes, you're right. Because Kansas, it was literally about choice. You didn't have to, you're a Republican who didn't like 
government taking away freedom from individuals, you didn't have to go vote for a Democrat to express that. You could just vote for against that amendment. But in Alaska, it was a Democrat versus a Republican. And it was a Republican who's not only very representative of the Republican Party today, someone who's in many ways was the forerunner of the QAnon movement. And Sarah Palin. Oh, yeah. No, she's yeah, like she, the grandmama of QAnon. And, and, yeah. and great name recognition was the governor. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. so she definitely had a brand. Uh, Terry, I'll let you have the last question because I know we're very busy. So, yeah. So I'm, while we've been talking, I've also been scrolling through the Monmouth poll that just came out this afternoon. And I'm sure by the time this is, this podcast is live on Monday, everyone will have had a weekend to digest this. But this poll is saying that 51% of the respondents said that abortion... Georgia's abortion laws are too strict. And so, you know, again, I've, I've, it's still this one had 14% of people saying, I think, I think if I've ever read it correctly and through my skimming, 14% of folks in the Monmouth poll are saying that abortion is a key issue. But this poll also has Kemp at 34%, Abrams at 33%. So this, this Monmouth poll is coming out is, is completely unlike what we're seeing with the AJC poll. Yeah, that's right. I, I took a quick look at the Monmouth poll, and you know that's one where the, their their sample is actually much closer to reality, or at least the past precedent. They have okay. women at fifty four percent of their sample. It's slightly more Republican than uh, twenty twenty or twenty eighteen, but only by a point or two. Um, it's slightly older too, which a lot of polls do you older. I think that's the one thing, like in terms of a bigger wild card. It's women, but it's especially younger women. And we are seeing younger men stepping up now. Mm-hmm. Younger voters were such a key part to Democratic successes in 2018 and 2020. I think before Dobbs, they weren't coming out this election. They didn't have much of a reason to connect overall to the party. And right. now we're seeing that engagement just go through the roof. This poll doesn't reflect any possible surge in young people voting. And like you say, it shows a very close race, which I believe is where these races, when we look at these statewide races in Georgia, this is where they stand. They are close races that either side could win. I mean, in, in some ways you look at it and you say they shouldn't be close given everything else. Right. But the reality is um, either side has a chance. Yeah. Um, and I think that poll certainly depicts to me what feels like when you look at that sample, a more reasonable depiction of what could happen. And if anything, it's right. just slightly more optimistic for Republicans. And, and frankly, from a Democratic perspective, that's probably how we should be looking at things. Don't assume that that vote is going to materialize. Do the work and hope that you're pleasantly surprised. Right. Do the groundwork. Get out that younger vote, because I think the younger vote will be key in the Warnock-Walker race also. Because, again, you Very have a so. lot of younger voters and a lot of younger, a lot of young people who have made Georgia their home are not from Georgia, didn't go to the University of Georgia. Herschel Walker is not part of their mythology. And I do think that that will be a factor also with, with these younger voters. A- absolutely. You're right. I mean, like I said, Georgia, Georgia and Texas have the two youngest electorates in the country. It's no surprise that we look at these states. I think Georgia is politically a bit of, ahead of Texas mm-hmm. from a partisan perspective. Oh, yeah. People are waiting for Texas to maybe get a little bit more democratic. And I think it will get there. Uh, but Georgia just demographically and a big part of that is, like you say, it's younger voters coming in. And you're right. I don't think they have that same sort of nostalgic connection to Herschel Walker that maybe some some older voters do. They will be key in this election. Wow. Well, Tom, we're on the edge of our seats. This is uh, a <laughs> living in Georgia is uh, never easy. But listen, we will rely on your reporting. And thanks for being really honest and for taking the time. We know you're really busy. Everybody wants to 
uh, see you and book you for shows um, on MSNBC and the New York Times. We will look forward to your commentary and thank you so much for giving us the time today. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Tom Bonnier. That was great. He, he's, that's so, there were so many things he said that are so interesting. I, I'm, I'm left with a little bit more hope, but I'm also like, okay, I still think it's like nobody knows. No, I'm left with hope, but I'm also further, you know, my conviction that we have got to get our ground game going hard and strong is even, and, and that's what the Democrats are doing. The Democrats are known for their ground game, but we really cannot leave any stone unturned with getting people out there to vote, getting people to the polls. And I'm very encouraged with what he said about younger voters. I'm encouraged with what he said about women, but I'm very encouraged also with what he said about younger voters, particularly as that's going to relate to the Senate race. Because, you know, I really do. I've been saying this from the beginning. You know, if like I'm 46, I was four years old, you know, when the UGA won the Sugar Bowl and I didn't live in Georgia and I'm not unique. And it's, it was... Is football history a factor in the primary? Absolutely. I just don't think it's going to be as big of a factor. I don't think it's going to be the deciding factor in the general. Well, I don't think it's the football that's the deciding factor. No, I think but it's some, the, a lot of people seem to think it really is. I'm like, I just don't. It's the R next to his name. Yeah, it's the R next to his name. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot too because, you know, Mitch McConnell, who is having to ha- campaign for people who he would normally not deign to campaign for, like mm-hmm. Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz. And J.D. Vance. And he's, you know, if Mitch McConnell really thinks, you know, if he gets his majority back, which is his number one goal, he's desperate for this majority, right? If he thinks he's going to be able to actually control a policy agenda with that majority, he needs to give his buddy John Boehner a call. Yeah, that guy is living his best life. He's living his way. best life. And in part, and I read his, his you know, his book. Was, I've heard was, his book is amazing. His book is amazing. Listen to the audio version because you get to really... You get the emphasis on how he really feels about yeah. Ted Cruz. It's yeah. fabulous. But it's a good, it's a good, dishy, interesting, informative book. I highly recommend it. But again, he realized quickly, like he got this majority, but he got it at a very high cost in terms of the quality and the ideologies of the folks that he had to then find a place for on the Republican bus. Yeah. So that's definitely a um a factor of what's going on. What's interesting is we talk about the AJC pools because, of course, we all read the AJC. So they put out a poll and we're all like, oh, my God, we got to go read this immediately. What's interesting is we have a slide of a September 2020 poll. And, you know, it pretty much says that uh, Purdue was up by 2.4 points. So within the margin of error, but still. We all know what happened. It ended up right. going to a runoff. So it's it's definitely, you know, we we can't go ahead and look at everything and know because I think what we talked about, I don't think anybody knows anything. I think it could be a snapshot, but... I- it's a moment in time and there are about 45 or so days left, give or take, until the election. And I think that, you know, the the... What we really need to be looking at over these next weeks and days is the data on who is pulling absentee ballots. And then when early voting starts, who is who is early voting? And that's, I think, will tell us a lot about, you know, when we when we can compare that to 2020, I, I think that's going to tell us a lot about what we might be able to expect. All right. Well, we got to make sure that we get everybody we know out to vote. That's exactly because, right. Because I'll tell you what, I mean, that, uh, you know, I don't have to say it enough that that Herschel Walker really scares me. He's very scary. And it's scary to, to imagine 
what he would be like in the Senate. I think about, you know, up there, you know, beyond the pearly gates and you've got Johnny Isaacson and Max Cleland and Paul Coverdell and Sam Nunn and like, what must they be thinking? I know. It's just, it's just, but you know, look, I've talked to people who, who are just, they don't care. I, I mean, yeah, really, they want the R next to his name. And people I know and I like and I respect have said that. Yeah. So, so, oh, yeah. And at what cost? Like, at what cost to this state and our, you know, the way we're viewed? Like, at what, yeah. what cost? Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, this, I, this, uh, yeah. I do think that Warnock needs to get a little nastier in his ads, though. I feel like he's just being too nice. I feel like, I feel like, you know, uh, playing tough. And like you said, we have, uh, you know, about a little over a month left. Right. Um, you, you know, they always talk about October surprise. So... There will, I'm, I'm certain there'll be an October surprise. And the other thing too, if we have to keep in mind and talking about, you know, how campaigns will inevitably get a little nastier, anything that was going to come out on Warnock came out in 2020. Of course it did. But I imagine there is still a boatload of information on Herschel Walker that I don't think it matters. No, to be no, honest, I mean, I really don't. I think we are in a world where if grabbing by the pussy, people yeah. did it, it doesn't matter. To me, there's been enough about him that should freak or turn people off. So I don't think it matters. And here you have the leader of their party, basically, with how many criminal investigations are we working on between right. Mara Largo and the <laughs> Tish James in New York City, you know, the New York Attorney oh, yeah. General, and, uh, you know, now going to trial for rape from E.G., you know, E.G. and Carroll and January 6th. Right. So we have got a long way to go. We do. Only um, Tiffany is coming out unscathed. I mean, that's the Georgia connection. <laughs> kind of good for her. <laughs> good for Tiffany. I love how they're like, oh, Bill Barr's like, don't bring the kids into this. I'm not even sure she has a, a good case against Trump himself, but what ultimately persuades me that this is a, a political hit job is uh, she grossly overreaches when she tries to drag the children into the, this. Yes, they had roles in the business, but this was his personal financial statement. It was prepared by the CFO. Uh, accounting firms were involved in it. The, the children aren't going to know the details of that and be able, and nor are they expected in the real world to do their own due diligence and have it, you know, reviewed independently. And so uh, this, this to me looks like gross overreach, which I think is going to end up backfiring on them because I think it will make people sympathetic for Trump. That this is another example of uh, people piling on because of uh, Trump derangement syndrome. This, you know, this strong desire to, you know, to, to, to punish him. Yeah, they ran the company and we're in the administration. Well, if we're having that logic, do we leave Hunter Biden alone, right? Right. Well, and Hunter Biden's not part of the administration the way that, the way that Ivanka and the other kids were. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the son and Jared Kushner and yeah. Is, I mean, that Bill Barr is just a, you know, a turtle, like a farting turtle. I mean, it's just that guy. All right. Uh, we want to finish off with something fun. Always. Um, so, this ad is someone, her name's Linda Paulson, and she's running for Utah District 12 as a Republican. And um, of course, like, I literally was obsessed with this, as was Terry. And so I'm just going to set the scene for you. She's wearing red, white, and blue next to an American flag. 
and she's probably in her 70s. I would say that fabulous, fabulous silver hair. Like that, it, silver hair is not easy. And she, like, she is maintaining her hair. Okay. It's, it, it's Ann Richards-esque. Yes, good. District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. My name is Linda Paulson, Republican and awesome. Love God and family and the Constitution. I tried to get another conservative to run. Nobody could do it, so I'm getting it done. I'm pro-religious freedom, pro-life, pro-police. The right to bear arms and the right to free speech. I want less government. Control and regulation want to stop and expose all political corruption where is integrity, <laughs> morality, accountability. Government programs should lead to self-sufficiency and support traditional family as a fundamental unit of society. But in schools, they're pushing for new beliefs. Oh, my God. I'm glad she got the praise adult, band from her church on board to, to do the music. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like to think it's her on the piano. I love this ad. I love her. I know she is very anti-choice and anti-trans and anti-anti-anti-anti. Yes. But I love this song. But she's sincere, (laughs) and I respect her commitment to rhyme. The fact that she was able to rhyme Paulson with Republican and Awesome, and and she pulled it off. Somebody wrote that for her, you think? No, I I think it's all her. I mean, yeah, I think this is her. I think she is the person who, anytime there's like a retirement party, she's the one who writes the poem for the person who's retiring and <laughs> recites it. Or like if they're at the rehearsal dinner, she is the person writing the rhyming toast. I, and she's probably toasting with, you know, Pepsi, which is fine. Uh, listen, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. You got to get creative. I don't know if that could be, maybe that's her October surprise, Terry. <laughs> Uh, is that ad. I I mean, I I freaking love it. I I love these. But I fixate on, I've probably mentioned that my favorite ad is the David Perdue, horny for David Perdue. (laughs) I don't think I know what that is. Okay, this is the spot. This I, I think with Jen, when Jen and I first started doing the podcast together, she this commercial, like it only has 4,404 views on YouTube. But I think I've watched this 404 times. You might be all of them. Is wait, this? Yeah. Cappy Clutch. I really just like David. He's a good person. And he's concerned about <gasps> our veterans, yes. our military. David Perdue has done exactly what he said he would do. David Perdue is a man of his word. He is. He is so well-rounded, well-focused. He's so He hot. is looking out for all Georgians. I know that David is not going to defund our police and he is not going to gut the military. I'm David Perdue and I oh approve my God. this message. <laughs> I do remember that ad. I remember that ad. I remember that I ad. Mean, All the ladies, <laughs> they were, yeah, they were. They were horny for were David Perdue. Uh, speaking of that, before we go, where is David Perdue? Where is Sea Island, Mr. Burns? I don't know. He has not been. They don't have, they've got Youngkin on the campaign trail. They've got Nikki Haley on the campaign trail. They don't have, no, they're not horny for David no, Perdue at all. Not anymore. And so if Trump <laughs> comes and does a rally in Georgia, which he might could, just like he did in Ohio and where he, summarily humiliated J.D. Vance, his candidate, and, you know, just completely emasculated and humiliated him. I do think that if Trump comes to Georgia, I would be shocked if Kemp went. I don't think Kemp would be anywhere near there. Walker, 
Mike could, but where, what is Purdue's role in this campaign? It's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is. All right. Well, we're going to keep watching that. All right. Thanks so much, Christina Loringer. We hope you had a really good vacation. That's why we had a little pause uh, in the podcast. But don't worry. We are going to be consistently here for you delivering you horny for David Purdue commercials. Oh, <laughs> the Dean jacket. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> 